Hello, I'm Judd Wallenbrook, and I'm fortunate to be the president and CEO of C. Mandavi and Family, which is home to Napa Valley's oldest and most historic winery, Charles Krug. And you're listening to From the Heart, presented by Orange Kiwi Consulting. All right. Well, as you hear, my guest today is my, I'll, I'll say my great friend, but fairly new friend. How I know Judd is uh, for the Center for Family Business at Cal State Fullerton. Every year we do a Family Business Hall of Fame, and Peter Mandavi of the of the family that he represents was scheduled to be our speaker in April, and then COVID decided to throw a curveball at us a little bit, and uh, so everything went online, as everybody watching and listening here knows today. And I had the good fortune with all of this to get to know Judd, who runs Charles Krug C. Mandavi Family Winery up in Napa, as he mentioned. So Judd, it's great to see you. I love your background there. It's uh, we both for those that are listening. We're both representing the, the, the brand today. So hopefully those, uh, when you watch and listen, you'll be inspired to, uh, to, to open up a bottle of, of this great wine. So Judd, it's nice to see you. I know you guys have had a lot of fires up there in your area recently. Can you tell me a little bit about um, the role that you played? I know, I know what it is and I read a lot of the stuff in the media, but just kind of the inspiration to, to really step in and be a, a support for the first responders and to really utilize your space there to, to help out with your neighbors. Yeah, right. Well, it's a very <clears throat> tight community. Um, the wine industry in general is a very tight community and um, the fires hit and uh, the very first thing we do as a company, anytime, anytime there's some kind of a disaster or there's some kind of emergency, which there seems to be more of them <laughs> going on these years, uh, the first thing we do is we do a head count. We do that, that phone tree uh, activity to find out that uh, who and where all of our staff is to make sure that first and foremost, they're safe. We did have a few people that were evacuated, uh, but fortunately nobody lost their homes. Uh, although some people did have a little bit of damage done to their uh, property. Uh, but once we figured out that we were all safe, um, it became pretty clear that the next step was to, to sit down with my senior management team and say, okay, now what can we do to help? We're sitting here in, the, in really in an incredibly strategic location in St. Helena, and the fires were all in St. Helena and north of us. Um, and we have a, a, a large swath of land that the estate itself is, eight, is about 150 acres, and several of those acres are completely empty. And... Uh, uh, so we kind of started brainstorming on what we could be doing to help. Can we help evacuees? Can we help, you know, Cal Fire? Uh, and uh, uh, the name PG&E came up. My uh, COO, Jeff Richardson, is ex-PG&E. Uh, and uh, that became a natural thing for us. So we called up PG&E. And uh, within two days, they had set up base camp there. And they're still there today. And will be for probably another couple of weeks. Um, there's literally hundreds almost thousands of power lines and power poles and everything that needs to be uh, put back into place. Uh, and uh, that's what these guys are doing. So a lot of cleanup and, and, and setting it back up basically is what you're saying with yeah. what these guys are now doing. So yeah, they're, they're getting power to people. Yeah. So talk about that relationship. You say, obviously you've got a lot of competitors around you, but it sounds like as an industry, you collaborate a lot more than you compete. And that's really my philosophy. I was told by my dad when I graduated from college, one of the many wisdom, uh, pieces of wisdom he gave me was collaborate wherever possible, compete as little as possible. Sounds like that's a, a pretty similar philosophy up there from how you're talking about, first of all, first of all, checking on your staff, making sure everybody there is okay, but also checking on your neighbors. Talk about that collaboration that goes on up there in that area. 
Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's just inherent in the industry and it's also inherent in the, uh, in the family that uh, owns uh, Seaman Davi. Um, Peter and Mark Mandavi are the co-proprietors and we're all family. And, uh, and I think that, you know, the industry treats itself like family. We are family. Uh, and uh, it's just, a, I think it's just the nature uh, of the area. And it could be even just the agricultural side of things. You know, remember, even though it's wine and very romantic, fundamentally, it's still just agriculture. We're just growing things and we're helping each other out with, uh, with everything. You know, it's not just fires, it's, it's, it's equipment if they need equipment, it's the expertise if they need expertise. Uh, you know, it's pretty competitive out in the sales environment, but, sure, but sure. when it comes to the uh, the actual winemaking and the and you know our own place, uh, everybody's very very uh, supportive and tries to help everybody else out. So, big picture question here: What do you love about working? I mean, I'm, I'm diving into like the emotional side, and as you know, the podcast is called From the Heart, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But um, You've been doing this for 40 or so years. Hard to believe when people see the video here that you've done anything for 40 years because you look like you're 29. Yeah, right. But, um, you know, yeah, butter you up just a little bit there, waiting for my next shipment of, of <laughs> wine. Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what do you love about it? You've done this. Anybody's done anything for 40 years and still has the smile on their face like you do today. Obviously, there's a lot. But what, what comes to mind when I say, what do you love about just this industry and what you do? Uh, I think... You know, the, the biggest thing about the wine industry is that it's a it's an industry of passion. You know, it's a, you got to love what you're doing because, uh, you know, trust me, you don't make a lot of money doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're really making a lifestyle choice. And I, mm -hmm. and I think that uh, um, when I was, you know, pretty young, actually, when I first got out of undergraduate, uh, <clears throat> I was uh, talking to my... Um, ex-girlfriend's mother who was trying to figure out okay what are you going to do with your life you know you're pretty serious with my daughter here and I said you know I really don't know what I'm going to do but I do know this and that is that uh, I'm not going to let my job dictate my lifestyle I'm going to let my lifestyle dictate my job and uh, to which she responded well good luck with that yeah yeah and 40 <laughs> years later here you are right and uh, but that, that's the choice that i made and 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 actually i got bit by the bug really early i have an older brother who uh when he was 28 got into wine uh he's 12 years older than me so i was 16 took my first trip to napa valley because i could drive as a co-driver and uh um and and that was in 1974 so wow. none of this had really been built up like the way it is it was very uh very quiet no restaurants anything and uh and i just uh, fell in love i think the day I, I drove into the into the valley i fell in love with the idea of it you know what do you think has has contributed the most to that growth of from what you saw in 1974 so what let's do the quick math 46 years ago yeah. to today um, you've seen a lot of changes to the geography, not the geography as far as the layout, but as far as the buildup out there, what have been some of the big contributing factors to the boom? Well, it, you know, I think um, it's culture. So, uh, it, you know, the culture of Americans uh, back in 1974 didn't drink wine. Hmm. Um, you know, was, the per capita consumption was horrendously low. And frankly, it's still quite low. Um, but it was probably at that point in time, I'm going to guess it was in the like maybe 1.2 gallons per capita. And we're at about three gallons per capita right now, which doesn't sound like much, mm -hmm. uh, particularly when you compare that to our European friends who are at 15, 16, 17, 19 gallons per capita. Yeah, it's yeah. part of their culture, right? They, they, they're yeah. born with it. Uh, we're not. 
uh, and, uh, and, and particularly when it comes to sort of the middle of the country, um, it, it really all started on the, on the two coasts. And, uh, and then the East Coast really started with European wines and then California came out with, you know, our California wines and, and slowly now culturally it's come into the middle of the country and, and wine is now, you know, an accepted part of, uh, of the table and, uh, and that's, I think it's culture. You think that's the migration of people coming from various parts of the world to the United States? Because in 74, we were a much more, you know, less diverse culture than we are. We're seeing that in our election right now. Diversity is right, the name yeah. of the game. It's a conversation. Do you think that has a lot to do with it as well? Uh, that and, and the ability to travel. So, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of people now have, you know, shoot, I, you know, I took my backpack and, and uh, did your rail pass through, you know, through Europe, you know, and suddenly you're tasting great wines that are everyday wines on the table and they don't cost a arm and a leg. So I think it just, uh, it's, it's, it's both. It's people coming in. That's how Napa Valley was really founded. Yeah. It was founded by immigrants who, who, who wanted to have the old country here and it looked like the old country. So they planted grapes and made wine and voila, we've got the, uh, you know, uh, Napa Valley. Do you think that now, let me ask you a question because you know, you and I know each other. We've gotten to know each other fairly well over the last eight months or so. We didn't even know each other existed prior to that. But now in eight months, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I can consider you one of my closest friends that I've made this year. Um, I'm a novice when it comes to wine. I mean, I, from age 18 to age 50, I didn't drink, you know, and we've had conversations about that in the past. And I don't drink a lot even now. But um I mean, I do know what flavor I like, and certainly I tend to make my choices on brands based on the family businesses that I work with. I'm very loyal to the family business brands that I know because I know the families and I, not just because I'm supporting the family, it's not that as much as it's just, I try it because of the, 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 the relationship and it's like, hey, I really like the coffee I drink and the wine I drink and the food that I eat. You know, if I know the people behind it, it, it makes me want to choose them more frequently is part of that, you know, three gallons to, you know, per capita versus the 15 or 16, maybe a lack of understanding or knowledge. And what, I guess, what can you teach me about wine? If, if let's just forget that people are watching and listening today, teach Ed Hart about wine. How do I know other than the label on the bottle? How do I know a good wine from a bad wine? Yeah, well, it's a great question. Um, and I, I think the, the thing about wine is that you just got to try it, try it. You know, you don't have to know everything about it. I talk about this a lot, you know, where um, interestingly, I think that the wine industry is a lot like technology, even though we're the polar opposites. We're the least technological industry in the world. We haven't changed in 8,000 years, for God's sake. <laughs> it's a grape and it becomes a wine, right? Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but realistically, like I say, it's, it's like high tech because we all think we're supposed to know more about technology, right? We're supposed, to, we're, we're supposed to be smarter with our computer and, and, and it's intimidating. And so we just kind of fall back to what we kind of know. Oh, I'm an Apple guy or I'm an IBM guy or something like that. And, and you know, I, I'm really happy with this software. I'm just going to use this software. Don't, don't, don't change it up on me. And I think wine has that same problem. I think people just feel like, ah, it's too intimidating. I, I just... I, I just really, it's, it's too hard to get involved. I don't want to embarrass myself, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and realistically, wine is just such a simple thing. Ed, you know, you squish grapes and it makes alcohol, CO2, and heat. The heat and the CO2 go away and we keep the alcohol. Boom, you got wine. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bunch of other, you know, steps that go in there to make yeah. some nuances behind it. And, it's, and it is truly 
um, an, a wonderful sort of uh, mishmash of, of, uh, of science and art. Uh, and, uh, and I think when it comes to anybody who wants to enjoy wine, th the first thing I would do is I'd find a wine shop that has uh, somebody that uh, um, kind of understands, you know, that a good wine shop should ask you the question, what have you had before that you like? Okay. And then they're going to, he or she will then, you know, sort of walk you through, hey, if you like that, you might like this. It's relational database stuff, right? You mm -hmm. know, if you like this, you might like that. Sure. And, and that person becomes kind of your guru. And, uh, and if you can't do it with a wine shop, there's certainly now we're in a, an app based types of things, mm -hmm. you know, Vivino is amazing for that, or even yeah. just Facebook, you know, ask your friends. It's, we have so much more available to us to, to, uh, to get recommendations from people that we trust, uh, and like, um, and there's no substitute for just trying it. You know? Yeah, I've actually seen that on a lot of apps and, and things that have come my way of, you know, what do you like to eat? What do you, you know, what are your right. preferences and so and so? And then it pairs it down to, okay, then try these. Uh, they talk about pairing. They talk about, you know, if you like steak, then drink a red wine. If you like fish, drink a white. And maybe I'm saying it wrong. I don't know. Yeah. Talk about pairing. I mean, again, I, I, I want to just, I'm, I'm fascinated by this and I have a lot of friends that I know are as well. And my friends are the ones that listen to this podcast. So I'm going to assume that, uh, <laughs> You know, we're not a huge audience yet. We're maybe get there, but right now, I just I think that there's an education there that some of us will enjoy. Just, you know, you and I have always joked about, you know, you like to pair music. To, yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say that. Yeah, yeah. I figured you might go there, so go there. That's fine. I love it. Well, I think you know when it comes to wine, those of us in the industry think of wine as food. It's not uh, an accompaniment to food. It's something that goes, uh, you know, on the on the on the plate virtually, you know because the wine tastes better with food and the food tastes better with wine. Mm -hmm. It's just that simple. Um, so from our standpoint, it, you know, it really is food. Um, uh, but then it's, again, it's experimentation there. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing right. You know, whatever you like is what's, you know, it's like art, right? It's yeah. if you, if you, or it's, or it's like a book, you know, well, I like that book, but you didn't like that book. Well, you know, it's subjective. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, um, the, um, the key is to try a lot of different things. Now there are plenty of resources that will help you. Um, you know, wine and cheese go together like, whew, you know, like <laughs> orange juice and sunshine. Peanut butter and jelly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just, it just, it's a, it's a perfect pairing. Right. But there's nuances within that. If I'm going to have a, like our, we have a Sauvignon Blanc that's really got great acid. It's really fresh. It's bright. Um, and if I was going to have a big creamy cheese with that, it wouldn't really help. You know, they don't, they, it would taste fine, but it, they, but they don't, you know, sort of uh, help each other out. But if I had a nice, either uh, a, a dry aged uh, cheese, or if I had something that was like a goat cheese, a chev or something like that, something else that's high acid, they kind of balance each other out and, and, and work well. So you just, you start learning uh, what goes well together and what doesn't. I, th I think maybe I've shared with you before, you know, I grew up in Southern California. I was a, I was a surfing baseball player and, mm -hmm. and, yeah. and Mexican food was, was part of my everyday life. Yep. And, uh, and my guilty pleasure is chips and salsa today, to this day, I'm 63 years old and it's chips and salsa, darn it. That's what I'm going to eat. And, and it's hard to find a wine that goes well with it. Well, as it turns out, Sauvignon Blanc goes great with it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but I, how did I find that out? Experiment. Well, I did chips and salsa for dinner last night with a cab of yours. So <laughs> that went pretty well as well, just so you yeah, know. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, so 
how does your sales team, so you talk about how obviously up there where you are, you know, a lot of very collaborative, is the word that I used earlier, um, and it's much more competitive out in the sales industry. Just last word on this, maybe, I might come back to it, but before I get into, you know, a little bit more of your background and how you got where you are today, how does your sales team differentiate against the competition? I walk into a grocery store and I've done this with you before. I've taken pictures of the shelf at a grocery store and sent it to you and said, help, you know, I need something. And um, how do you differentiate from the thousands of brands that are on the shelf? And how you know, I think that's where um, part of my background is, is packaged goods. I did uh, um, do a stint at Nestle. So classic packaged goods is, uh, it, and this is, this is where it would be at wine or, toothpaste or combs or <laughs> or sure. whatever uh there's similarities and that is you know making sure that you have very very clear positioning uh and how you want to be you know perceived in the marketplace and uh, and then you tell that story and you reinforce that story with all the things that you've got the package the you know the pricing the you know it's the the, the marketing piece um and uh and in our particular case uh we are fortunate that we've got two um, kind of big stories behind us. One is that Charles Krug is the oldest winery in Napa Valley. It's the place that started it all. Um, and so there's, there's only one winery that can say that. Yeah, exactly. Only <laughs> one oldest. Yeah. And then the other thing is, is that we're still family owned in an environment where there are lots and lots of family owned wineries. Um, uh, the vast majority in Napa are, but the perception isn't that way. The perception is, is that they're all owned by uh, large corporations. And many of the big names are owned by mm -hmm. uh, large corporations. Uh, and uh, nothing wrong with that, but uh, I think there's a integrity and an authenticity that goes along with uh, being family owned. And, and we're in our fourth generation of Mandavi ownership too. So it's not like a fly-by-night operation. Exactly. Not, you know, like where these guys come from. Yeah. So, so talk about the family a little bit. I've had the opportunity and the honor to get to know Peter a little bit. I've yet to meet Mark, but I've gotten to know Peter virtually. We've had phone calls and now a lot of Zoom calls this year. Yeah. Um, and you have been gracious enough, you and Peter both, to, to appear on some other episodes of things that we've done with you know, the Family Business Center at Cal State and with Allie and Orange Kiwi and so forth, our, our sponsor. Can you talk just a little bit about what, what drew you 40 years in the industry, a lot of options. You've, you've, you've run your own wineries. You've worked for other wineries. You are kind of that free agent. Here we are in the free agent season now of, of baseball as an example, where you know, the key players are picking where they get to go. And there's a lot of factors beyond money. You said you're not getting wealthy doing this. So yeah. you really are making the choice of where to work based on a match. So talk about that family and how you feel like you're a match in this. Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> I really hope they're not listening to this. <laughs> I won't send it to Peter. <laughs> but I will tell you that uh, I, when I was interviewing for the job, you know, almost four years ago, uh, I was sitting there with uh, uh, Peter and Mark, and they asked me, they asked me the question, you know, well, why do you want this job? And I said, look, you know, I've been in the business for close to 40 years at that point in time, and there's there's kind of three jobs in the line, three sort of places that you can work. You can either work for yourself, and I had my own label for 15 years, so I, I did that. Uh, you could work for some soulless corporate entity, which I've also done that, mm -hmm. or you can work for some dysfunctional family. Oh, there you go. Nice. And that's not what you're doing now, but and, no, yeah. yeah. And I, and I choose to put the fun back in family dysfunction. There you go. Yeah, you definitely <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, the Mandavi's laughed at that. Yeah. And, uh, and the name Mandavi is, is very, 
it's very famous uh, amongst you know a lot of people. Although uh, we will tell you that uh, the younger generation, you know, they're not born knowing that name anymore. You know, but uh, the uh, I was also fortunate enough to work for the other side of the Mandavi family, which was Robert Mandavi. And I think when people think of the name Mandavi, they think of Robert Mandavi. Sure. Uh, and uh, because he was quite the uh, uh, promoter and and quite a sensational guy, I worked for them from '92 through '01. Uh, unfortunately, <clears throat> so uh, in 2004, they sold to a large corporation, Constellation. So we're in this very interesting situation where we've got a family named Mandabi that owns Charles Krug. So our name doesn't, isn't on our label, uh, but it's owned by Mandabis. Robert Mandabi, which is not owned by Mandabi. <laughs> so the label that says Mandabi take doesn't notes, have any- Take notes, folks. I should have said it again, but take, take some notes, yeah. Yeah, so the Robert Mandavi, the company that, that says Mandavi on it doesn't have any Mandavis in it. So it's like clear as mud, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's our uh, identity crisis is what I call it. But uh, the truth is that Robert actually started at Charles Krug. Uh, he was, uh, it was all one family. Chesri and Rosa Mandavi were the, were the generation one. Uh, Peter and Robert were generation two. In 65, Robert left and started Robert Mandavi Winery. And then he had his family. And uh, meanwhile, uh, Peter and his two sons, Peter Jr. and, and Mark, continued on uh, at Charles Krug, and to this day, they're still there. Um, Peter Sr. Uh, lived until he was 101, died four years ago, almost five years ago now, uh, and basically worked until he died. Uh, his two sons have been working there all of their lives. Uh, they're now getting to that age where they're, you know, not too far away from uh, retirement, and then uh, there is a fourth generation that is also involved with the company, both on the board of directors and some people involved with uh, actual uh, either sales or some other elements uh, of the company. And they're all ambassadors to the to the winery yeah. as well. Are you finding in your role, I see this a lot in family business, and maybe this wasn't the reason why they looked to go outside to bring in a non-family CEO like you are, but certainly a, a benefit of your experience in your role now is that you can potentially be that bridge between Peter and Mark and the next gen after them. Not that you're spending your time grooming the next generation, maybe you are, but do you find that you are spending some time in your role as CEO of maybe figuring out who the next person will be, if it is family or? Yeah, part of that. Um, you know, the, the real mission that I have for the company is to create a sustainable business model so that multiple generations of Mandavis can own it forever. I mean, that's, that's, that is what I'm doing. It's staging yeah. the company for, yeah. for long-term uh, generations. In fact, our, our model that I employ a lot is the Antonori family in Italy. Mm -hmm. They're in generation 26. Yeah, one of the oldest, and, if not the oldest winery, right? Yeah, and, uh, and I joke, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure their first winemaker was Jesus. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, yeah. No doubt about it, yeah. Different different <laughs> but, process now, but yeah. That's exactly <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if we can stage a, a business model that enables that to happen, whether or not a Mandavi is running the company or not, they're still going to be the owners, and that's what we're that's what we're uh, shooting for. Um, so that's my job is to create that 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 business model. Uh, I'm not necessarily looking to groom anybody, but mm -hmm. if that happens, great. Uh, uh, I'd love it. You know, I think it would be phenomenal. To, so you weren't charged with that when you came in. Hey, help us yeah. find our successor. What's the What do you like? Here's your chance to share just a little bit about. Um, Let's talk to that non-family executive in a family business out there in America or wherever that may be listening to this today. What, um, what do you love about that role of not being family? I mean, 
granted, maybe if you could own it, you would, I don't know. But I mean, you obviously find a tremendous amount of joy in what you're doing. I've talked with Peter enough about you and with you and Peter together that, you know, the perception and the reality is that you're doing a great job leading the winery and the family business. What would you tell that non-family executive that's really trying to figure out their, their wheelhouse within the family owned company? Right. Well, I'll tell, I'll, I'll tell, I'll say exactly what I told to the, the Mandabis because remember there, there's two sides of the family there's two brothers. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's always that kind of uh, relationship and then there's their children and spouses. So altogether there's 10 of them. And, uh, and, and as you can imagine, families, maybe are, maybe they are all on the same page, but sometimes they're not. I mean, all of our families are like that. Right. So, um, you know, part of my role is to be that great moderator. I'll just tell you what I told them when I first came on board. And that is that I am family agnostic and I'm company evangelistic. And, uh, and that is what I, my, my recommendation to anybody who's in dealing with a family operation is that you have to divorce yourself from, um, you know, family favorites or anything like that. You have to be making business decisions, uh, not necessarily emotional decisions. No, that's great because I do know a lot of non-family executives who feel torn. They feel like they're representing the family more than the company and that just doesn't work. I've seen, you know, a few examples without naming any names where they brought in either someone internally that was already with the company and moved them up to the corner office, but they became such a, a, I won't say the word puppet, that's not the right word, but certainly, yeah, they became family evangelistic and almost company agnostic to reverse what you said. So it's fantastic advice. And, and kind of, if you, if you really think about this, um, you know, what's good for the company is going to be good for the family. Mm-hmm. What's good for the family isn't always necessarily good for the company. So you right. always have to do what's right for the company. And I think that's, that's the message you have. And you have to, you have to, you have to be tough about that. <laughs> so would you say that they are more of a business family than a family business? I mean, how would you... How would no, that's, you... Well, that's a good call. I don't know. Uh, they're incredibly active and, mm-hmm. and, and, and rightfully so, you know, and they, they own it and, uh, and their name is famous and they've mm-hmm. got enormous amount of, uh, of, uh, history, you know, and experience, uh, uh, running it. So, uh, I don't know which one that would qualify for sure. I would say that they're, uh, that, you know, even though they're not running the operational day to day type of things, they're definitely, um, active when it comes to particularly certain parts of it winemaking being one of them yeah. and, and grape growing. Yeah. We have an event, uh, we, we partner with Orange Kiwi on this Lemonade Lab, as you know, you've been a part of it in the past and probably will be going forward, I hope. Um, one of the, the modules we have coming up, in fact, I think it's the next one we have coming up is called Building Your Board. And the idea is to help family businesses really look at their, whether they don't have a board yet, okay, mm-hmm. let's get started. What are, what are the key components that you need to get it rolling? Maybe the board isn't functioning adequately so let's modify it or maybe the board is functioning like a well-oiled machine and let's just maintain that it is without giving away too much because i know what happens in the boardroom stays in the boardroom and it should Um, what can you share about where the board is how it's made up constituted and any advice you might give to somebody who's either hasn't started yet needs to fine-tune or needs to keep it running like a well-oiled machine where would you without saying where you think yours is unless you care to that's not really my question just your advice because you've been doing this for so many years and you're now obviously leading and and running you know board meetings for the for the family yeah uh well at least in my experience and i and i'm sure there's plenty of other um sort of templates for this but i think most boards are either uh uh 
very operational or they're very advisory. And, uh, and I, and my personal belief is that they should be advisory, not operational. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let the people who know what they're doing operate. Yeah. That's why you've got yeah. them in place. And in our particular case, they, they are, uh, quite advisory. Um, uh, but they're so close to the business that, you know, that it's, their inputs are, you know, constant, but it is input. And I do make a difference between, uh, I, often my ter the term I use is thank you for your input, as opposed to thank you for your direction. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, um, because it is uh, a fine line there. Um, <clears throat> this company, before I was there, before I was here, uh, they started with an advisory board, not a formal board. And uh, so each kind of family member sort of brought in their uh, friends or people that they wanted, make, you know, they thought would be good to do. And uh, then uh, uh, after that, they decided they wanted to have a formal board. So they created a formal board. And I think uh, with that formal board, they learned a lot uh, of what they wanted, what they didn't want. And one of the things that they learned that they wanted was that they wanted to have people that actually did have wine experience. The, the previous board didn't really have the wine experience. So it wasn't, uh, I, don't, I don't think it worked out well for them. So uh, the current board, the way that we've structured it now is that the, the two uh, brothers, Peter and Mark are uh, on the board. They're two eldest children, the, the eldest child of each is on the board. So there's four Mandavis on the board. Um, me uh, is, is uh, you know, I guess, number five. And then we brought in two outside board members, both of whom came from the wine industry uh, and have experience in the wine industry um, and specialization in certain areas mm -hmm. uh, within things as well. So one of them is a heavy up finance guy and the other one is a heavy up on uh, marketing and also a lot of other uh, uh, legal uh, issues when it comes to land, et cetera, et cetera. So really a well-balanced uh, uh, board, and I think a very operational one from the standpoint that uh, everybody respects each other. Mm -hmm. And it's so, all about governance, right? You know, that's yeah. really what it is. Yeah, so much more of an advisory role than the fiduciary. The board right. doesn't really call the shots as far as the, the operation is what I'm hearing you say for, for your particular organization. There are others obviously that they do. But. Yeah. Yeah, without and you know, the, the idea is, is that uh, once the, uh, the budgets are approved, then go up, go execute them, Judd. You and your yeah. team go execute them. Yeah. Uh, uh, we, we approved it, so ergo. <laughs> right, and it works I'm because they trust you. They wouldn't have brought you in there. You're not a figurehead who came in from the outside just because no. they needed mm -hmm. someone to create peace in the organization and the family. No. You really have that operational experience and background to, to, to be trusted by the family from what I know. To, to implement, to, to execute, but also implement those decisions and create the, the, the decisions as well. Right. So if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? <laughs> uh, you know what? I think uh, I'd be trying to play on the, the champions tour is what I- <laughs> There you go. Right on. You and me both. You and me both. We're both I old would, enough, uh, so I why not? Be, I would be playing golf as much as I possibly can and, and, uh, and, and see if I couldn't uh, make a few bucks doing that. There you go. You a good golfer? No, that's it. Well, define good, pretty, right? I used to be pretty decent. I just don't get a chance to play anymore, right? Because yeah. I work for a family. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. Well, all you old baseball players are pretty good golfers. You know, I know a lot of the, yeah. the best um, non-professional golfers that I've played golf with that have athletic background tend to come from baseball. You played baseball at UCLA. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about that 
but also I'd like to hear how that has shaped you into what you chose in your career. Cause there's a lot of right. discipline that comes from playing D one athletics. Yeah. So uh, Buffalo was, uh, it wasn't my, that wasn't my life goal. It wasn't like I was going to be a professional baseball player. I just happened to be good at it. And uh, I applied to one college and got in and then I was a walk-on and I made the team. So it, it effect, effectively, I, I, I knocked some guy who was on scholarship. <laughs> there you go, knocked him off. That's all right. <laughs> and uh, the doggy uh, dog world, right? Yeah. Well, I, you know, and I didn't really know it at the time, and I'm, I was a little bit young for my class. So I started when I was college when I was 17, and uh, turned 18 my freshman year, and uh, and suddenly I'm playing ball, and uh, uh, you know, it was six hours a day, six days a week, 12 months out of the year. You know, it's yeah. the it's the it's basically a full time job. And I think, um, you know, unfortunately what happened for me uh, was, it's, it's the good news, bad news. Uh, my, uh, my father uh, was a sort of a self-made guy and I was the fourth of four children and uh, he was trying to go out with a bang. He really wanted to score big on, you know, that one final deal. Well, that one final deal bankrupt him. And so uh, the end of my freshman year of college, uh, he and my older brother sat down with me and said, you know, uh, dad's lost everything and he can't support you anymore. You're on your own. So, so but get so really that, good and get a scholarship or go get a job. Yeah. yeah so that was uh, sort of the life decision. So I, I, I spent another year at UCLA. So I played two years at UCLA. And then I made that decision that I was going to transfer schools to a, a less expensive school. And you got to understand back then schools were not very expensive. My right. tuition at UCLA was $211 a quarter. Wow. Yeah, that's changed a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really has. A and, more zeros uh, after that now. Right. And so I took, uh, took about six months off and waited tables to make enough money. And I transferred up to Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, and uh, where the tuition was $66 a quarter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And the rent on my house was $83 a month that I paid. So it was just a, but I was waiting tables five nights a week. Um, interestingly, had I continued playing at, and, and wanted to play at UCLA, the guy that had just, I mean, at, at Cal Poly, the guy who just left Cal Poly was Ozzie Smith. Uh, oh, so I would have, and I was a shortstop. So that nice. would have been, uh, but I had made that life decision that I was going to stop playing ball and, uh, and, and, you know, get a little more serious about what I was going to do in the future. Yeah. But I will tell you that I think that the the, the biggest lesson that I learned from uh, from playing D1 ball uh, was discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, it was how to use your time wisely, how to win and how to lose. Uh, it wasn't all about winning at all, all costs. It was how you won. Uh, and uh, But I think that discipline of an athlete, a higher level athlete, uh, has served me really well for uh, what I've done in my career. It's, 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 it's a very... You know, you, it's, it's, it's almost like breaking things down into the most empirical form. You know, like if you're, if you're fielding a ground ball or you're, or you're hitting a curveball or you're hitting a fastball, you have to break it down into really empirical things so that you can, you know, process and move forward. And I think that's what business is. You have to strip it from everything, figure out everything that's going on, and then rebuild from, uh, from the most empirical level. You said a term there, and I'm going to focus in on that for a second, how you won. So I'm going to take that how you won and how you lost. Talk about that. So there's winning and there's losing, but more right. importantly than that, there's how you win and how you lose. What is, when, when you hear those two terms, what comes up for you? I think, um, and this is going to sound terrible, but I think people who maybe uh, didn't play at a high level, uh, maybe played sports, maybe they didn't, uh, winning is everything. And, 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 it, and even that, even if they don't, 
even if they cheat to win, mm -hmm. <laughs> you sure. know, or if they hurt somebody else to, to win, you know, it's, that's the all important thing to them. And, uh, and I don't think that when you get to a certain level, that's, that happens anymore. I think what ends up happening is that, you know, that you have a role to play and you're going to do your best job at doing it. And, and if everybody's doing that together, we'll probably end up in a good place. Um, but, uh, uh, but ultimately, it's like I, I think about a football team, you know, a football team where where the offense is is just crushing it. And they're, you know, they, they scored 50 points, but defense gave up 60 points and you lost the game. You know, uh, you don't see the football, you don't see the office saying, you know, God, I hate the defense. They're terrible. Yeah. We did our I'm job. Here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's because it's one team. And, uh, and I think that that's, uh, I think you learn that uh, through sports. And it, and the metaphors of sports are like way overdone and people, some people hate them, but the truth is that they are metaphors for life too. You mm -hmm. know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game and that play exactly. that, that comes right into everything in life. Yeah. Who have been some of your early mentors or leaders that have influenced you and maybe yeah. those even now that might. Yeah. Uh, well, they're my famous brother. or not. Yeah. Your brother, is that Craig? Yeah, Craig, my older brother uh, was, uh, he's, he's the oldest brother and he was sort of my baseball coach uh, at a young age and, and, uh, um, and he had a, a certain, he's done really well for himself in the, in the world of baseball. Uh, and, uh, um, and I was his first experiment. Nice. And at the same time, at the same time, he was also the guy that turned me on to wine. So uh, here I made my career out of wine and he made his career out of baseball. We sort of uh, helped each other out. So we, we definitely, you know, uh, recognize that with, with, within each other. And, and the weird thing is we also look a lot alike, even though there's a 12, 12 year difference. Yeah. Uh, so I think he was a big influence on me. Um, that when I, uh, a, a guy that I was, uh, first, uh, working for, when I got into the wine industry, I was working for a retailer in Southern California in Glendale, a place called the red carpet. And this guy that owned it was a guy named John Vicenti and John was, awesome. And he, uh, he just, uh, he taught so much about, um, not about wine, but about customer service, about um, uh, the importance of, of bending, the customer's always right and bending over backwards for the customer and in the work ethic behind that, you know, he, he was really, really influenced, uh, influenced, influenced me a lot. Um, Robert Mondavi definitely influenced me a lot. Uh, he's the one that, you know, brought me up to Napa Valley, uh, mm -hmm. from, from Nestle. So, sure. I, you know, I can't help but, uh, really be thankful for him. And I think that the, the key behind, um, what, uh, Robert Mondavi taught me was culture, uh, and the importance of culture of a company and the culture at Robert Mondavi was never, uh, that sort of like, you know, how you, there's some companies where they'll say like, well, you'll come up with some harebrained idea and they're like, that's so stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Don't do that. Yeah. Um, the culture at Robert and Dobby was like, how can we make that happen? Mm. And it was like, it, even if it was like crazy, it was like, yeah. how can we make that happen? You know, and it was we all the time. Sure. And I think that the, the company came first, the family came second. And, uh, and I think that was really, it, it, that was, you know, really changed my life and I thought it was really important. And, and so when I go forward after Robert Mondavi, I wanted to take all the best things of Robert Mondavi with me and then jettison the bad things and, uh, and, and get rid of those in other companies. And so those are probably my biggest influences. Yeah.
So that sounds like that's the style that you've taken on as a leader as well, too. If somebody comes to you, it's less about uh, whether it's a good, bad, good idea, bad idea, or not sure, but hey, how can we do this? Let's, let's figure out a way that we can work together and figure out together if this works. And right. if it doesn't, we'll figure it out together. If it does, we'll figure it out together. Yeah. So I, I think that's a great style. I think that we need more leaders like that in business and sports and politics and life in general who look at that more as a, yeah, what can we do together on this? It's, and it's coaching. You know, I mean, yeah. if you played, you know, you were a coach and you played ball, right? Right. <clears throat> Did you ever have a coach that, that, you know, like, looked at you and said, you idiot, that's so stupid how you're hitting or how, how you're fielding. No. All, my, all my football coaches were that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why I gravitated to baseball. <laughs> but I mean, those are not the successful coaches, right. you know, the ones yeah. that, that work with what you've got and then, and then cultivate it. Those are, those are good coaches. And that goes back to your, your point a minute ago that sports really is a great metaphor for life. I mean, team, we all know, teams are, are what it's all about in corporate America and family business and sports and families and churches. It's everything's in groups and teams and, and really the productivity comes more from that, that team kind of brainstorming together. And I, can't, I hate to overuse the word collaboration, but it really is important that we, those that try to make decisions and implement decisions in a vacuum, you know, they say that it's lonely at the top. Well, if you're at the top and you're alone, you're not a leader because right. if you're a leader, there are people there with you. Yeah, so, that's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. So you said that the wine business is as old as Jesus, as you alluded to earlier with the Ant Antonelli well, family. Older than that. Older it's than Jesus. A, that's true. Yeah, it's, it's about yeah. 8,000 years old. Yeah. yeah. So let me ask a question that may not have an answer. What's new in the industry or what's out there ahead for you, for, for your organization, for Charles Krug Winery? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I, we're not going to invent new uh, varietals. Uh, you know, that's our varieties of wines, you know, that's maybe we will, but that's, that's not really where it's at. I think the biggest um, opportunity in the wine industry, particularly for people that are coming up younger, uh, people that are coming up is, is how we communicate uh, to people. Um, as you sort of alluded to before, there's a lot more wineries now, and it's mm -hmm. a lot more crowded field. And how do you stand out in that crowd? You know, you sent me the picture of the... <laughs> yeah, at the grocery store. It's like, help, I don't know what to pick here. All I yeah, know is I'm uh, looking for a Cabernet to go with my steak, and I can't right. say yours. And then you pointed out on the shelf where yours was. I was like, oh, there it is. Yeah, right. yeah. so I think that... Uh, um, I think how we communicate to consumers uh, has changed quite a bit. I mean, it used to be advertising, and now it's all on on, on our phones, right? You yeah. Know, so it's... Uh, so it's a lot of Google Analytics, a lot of Google, uh, you know, activity. Uh, how do we, uh, how do we uh, get in the hearts and minds of, of buyers uh, to um, tell our story? That was another thing you, you asked about, you know, like what, what makes our point of differentiation or what does our salespeople sell? They sell a story. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and the story is, you know, very fertile. And uh, so I think uh, if we can get that fertile story into people's minds and break through the clutter of the millions of people that are out there, I think that's, that's, you know, from a marketing standpoint, that's nothing, nothing's changed. It's always been that way. It's just that the tools and the, and the vehicles and that we have to, to do that with have changed dramatically. And it's, yeah. and it used to be such a shotgun blast, right? Oh, I'm going to throw an ad in the newspaper or something like that. Well, now it's definitely a rifle shot. I mean, it is, it is, I can guarantee you, my phone's going to have some little, uh, you know, pop up <laughs> yeah. because of this conversation that we had. <laughs> sure. 
What do you tell, let, let's, let, it's, it's uh, focusing on, on that fourth generation of Mundavis, or let's talk to, you know, as you probably know, I think I've shared with you that we teach a family business dynamics class down here at Cal State Fullerton on Monday nights. I'm part of that, um, along with Tam, who you've met, right. at least virtually, on our little screens here. Mm -hmm. The students that may be listening, whether in a family business, whether they're not in a family business, what advice as, as a mentor now for yourself? I know you can't just say, hey, I'm going to mentor that person. It's more of a natural, you know, almost kind of a marriage. There has right. to be chemistry to make it work. But as you mentor or as you give advice to that younger generation that might be in a family business, what, what would be some points of advice you might give? I think the most important thing any family member can do is to get experience outside of the family. Uh, you know, and not be reliant on their name in their industry, get outside of their industry if they can. Uh, I think it's really, really important to do that. That doesn't mean that you're not going to spend time and come back, but broaden your horizon. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think some companies even make that a mandatory and I think it's a good mm -hmm. mandatory. Um, yeah. uh, I think that's probably the most important thing they can do. Um, second part of that is, is in no way, shape or form, uh, think that you're entitled to uh, to to you know be the CEO when you come back. Yeah, you know uh, we all have to pay our dues, and uh, and I think um, that's part of the culture that we're talking about. I think the most important part of any company is culture, and mm -hmm. if you've got family members uh, who uh, embrace that kind of culture, they belong. You know they they should come back and they should yeah. be in, involved with it, but they need to help cultivate it. Um, <clears throat> And, uh, and not be entitled behind it. Um, you know, we've got one of the, our G4 is mm -hmm. now pregnant. She's, we're, so we're gonna have our G5 coming up. Nice, along. very cool, very <laughs> nice. It just keeps coming, the, the succession will just, it'll, it'll happen whether yeah. we want, want it to or not, that's great. So I'm gonna come up there. I, I put on my LinkedIn tag when I talked about this podcast today and when we're done recording and it's ready to, to go up when I put it up tomorrow, I'm gonna do this again, but so when, when my family or my family businesses and I come up a month, a year, six months, whenever that, whenever that's allowable for us all to go through, and I know we can to a certain extent now, but um, let's say there's 10 of us coming up there or two of us coming up there on a weekend, where are you taking us first? So you meet us at the gate that's behind you in your, in your virtual picture here, yeah. where are you taking us first and why? Uh, well, <clears throat> there's, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm actually going to take you into the, into the cellar. Uh, because it's a, it's a historical building and there's such a, a story that goes on just behind the building, <clears throat> let alone the family. Uh, and then I'll take you into a, uh, uh, it's what I call, it's a, we have a reserve room in there uh, and on the wall that uh, dates back to our, vintner, uh, our vintage selection wine going back to 1943, uh, 1944, sorry. And it's just a liquid wall of history. It's just mm -hmm. visually so stimulating. Uh, but then after that, I'd probably take you out into the vineyards um, because it all starts in the vineyards. And to me, uh, that's what it's all about. Uh, and even like if you came out in, in, let's say in March, the vineyards are, are, they're dormant, they're pruned, there's nothing going on. But there is stuff going on. There's mm -hmm, stuff sure. going on in the soil. There's stuff going on in the air. And uh, so uh, it all starts with grapes. And so I really like to teach people uh, about vineyards and, and about where, the, uh, where everything starts is, is in the soil. Uh, but then we'd sit down and we taste wine because you, you got to go. taste wines. You gotta, I mean, you got to taste wines. I mean, that's, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> so going back to my lack of experience and the lack of experience of, you know, many of our listeners today probably know wine as well as anybody does. Maybe not as well as you do because they haven't worked in a day in and day out for 40 years, but they probably know it pretty well. But a lot of us don't. Um, I go to Temecula from time to time because it's close to where I live. I've been yeah. up to Napa. I've been up into Sonoma. I've, I've been to wine country. I've not yet been to um, Tuscany, but that's on the on the bucket list to go to Italy. I've been to Italy, but not to the wine part of it. Yeah. What can the novice see as we drive through? If I were driving the roads there behind you up in Napa Valley, there probably isn't much I could see that would tell me if it's a bad, good, great wine um, is there is there anything that the, the naked eye to the novice can look for as we're looking at maybe mm -hmm. as you walk me through the vineyards, what can I be looking for that can tell me anything about what might be in my glass eventually? Uh, <clears throat> that would be really hard to do actually just mm -hmm. looking at it. No, um, I think that probably the best thing to do is if you're driving along and you're going to see a name, you're going to go, yeah, I've never even heard of that winery before. Chances are that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, there's still wineries that I go to and I'm like, I'm, I didn't even know that existed. Mm -hmm. I do my research. I, I pull up Vivino, I pull up Google, you know, whatever it is, I'll find out what it is and see if there's a story behind it. The first thing I want to find out about is the story. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, <clears throat> um, you don't have to have your own grapes. You don't have to have vineyards, you know, to make wine. You can buy the grapes, you can do whatever you want. You don't need a big, beautiful winery either. You can have a garage. Mm -hmm. I have a shed in my backyard that's my winery. Nice. Very <laughs> and, cool. Uh, so <clears throat> I think you want to find out. Uh, uh, it's like any other company. You want to find out who's behind it too. Who's, who are these people behind it? I want to know their story. And, yeah. and do I trust them? And do I like them? You know, and do my friends like them? You know, uh, I definitely look into uh, this, you know, my friends. Have you ever had this wine before? What do you mm -hmm. think about that? Yeah. You know, what's good there? You know? like, like you said, anything, you know, that pizzeria, have you ever tried it? Oh, let's try exactly. it. It looks pretty good. Yeah. That film, that book, you know, that yeah. whatever it is, do the same thing. Um, but uh, and the other thing is with Napa Valley, <clears throat> one thing you have to know about Napa is that it is a very special place. It's only mm -hmm. 30 miles long and five miles wide. It's got more soil structures in it than any place on the face of the planet. Uh, it is, and what that means is that there's more diversity in the flavors of the wines that come from it because the, you know, the, the vines eat the soil, the soil turns it into grapes. And mm -hmm. if you've got very diverse soils, you're gonna have very diverse wines. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, most people don't know that uh, you know, California represents about 90 to 91% of all the wine produced in the United States and every state in the union grows grapes. And mm -hmm. when I ask the question, how much comes from Napa Valley? People say, oh, 40, 50, 70%. And the answer is 4%. Wow. <laughs> so it's a very small, very special yeah. place. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and the other thing about Napa Valley is it's, it's, it's you know, 50 years ago was the ag preserve. So it is preserved. There's, it's not going to turn into Silicon Valley. It has to be agriculture. So you're, you're just surrounded by beautiful uh, vineyards all over the place. Um, and then on top of that, you know, you've got, then you've got great restaurants. Uh, you've got great hiking. It's, I mean, it's really a, a paradise yeah. in so many ways. You know, you don't have to just do wine here. So you look at a year on a on a on a, a brand or a vintage or a, I don't even know what word to use. That's how little I know about it. Is the year? I mean, you look at it and say, well, 2017. Well, that was a really dry year, so that's a great year for more of the, yeah. the Chardonnay, but not so much the Cab. Or does the does the the climate dictate by the varietal of wine what's good and what's not not as good? Yeah. So vintage really does matter. 
uh, it's, you know, back, remember back when we were kids, the, the vintage of a car mattered, mm -hmm. right? You know, 67 Mustang. Yeah. yeah. Bingo. You know, yeah. somewhere along the line that all became unimportant, but uh, for wine, it's very, very important. Now, fortunately, because California is blessed with pretty amazing uh, weather, it's very hard to find a bad uh, vintage. There's been just a couple of vintages that have been sort of um, challenging in the last 20 years. And uh, so, I mean, you know, we, a lot of people would look at 1998, a lot of rain at the wrong time, 2011, oh, same thing, or, you know, uh, you said 2017. Well, the 2017 is the year where basically all of Napa was on fire. And, right. and did that mean that we have what they call smoke taint? Well, you taste the 2017s that uh, ours at least, you know, and they're beautiful wines um, and there's no issues with the smoke. So um, you do want to, you know, know your vintage particularly when you're going to um, other parts of the world where you're maybe not so familiar with what the weather is and yeah. maybe some parts of the weather are not as, uh, you know, gratuitous as, as what it is in California. Um, there's definitely better vintages than others. California is pretty blessed. It's yeah. not a whole lot of bad vintages, to be honest yeah. with you. I could just go on and on and keep asking you questions about points and about wines from different parts of different you know areas. I've had great wine, what I thought was great, grown in Halifax, Nova Scotia, or yeah. or Keystone, South Dakota, or here in Southern California, and the climates are obviously dramatically different. Right. What's what do you look for if you're? I mean, obviously, you know, you know what you like, and you've been around this for a long, long time. But when you go to other regions of the world, um, what are you looking for? with the wine yeah i think um mainly i look at the people behind it you know mm -hmm. uh so who's who's behind that winemaking and what's their uh, background are they you know brand new to the game are they very science science oriented or are they you know very traditional oriented is it is it old world is it new world this is sort of sommelier training too but uh <laughs> the uh uh i i definitely look at um I do look at their at their terroir, their you know their vineyards. You know, I do want to see what how they look, how they're groomed, how they're pruned, how they're you know what they're taking a look at. But I'm a geek that way. I'm going to look at that because that's just that's part of my training. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, you know, ultimately, bottom line, you you look for what's in the glass. What does it taste like? It's mm -hmm. all that's all you can ultimately trust is your own sense of like, man, that tastes really good. I want to buy that. Yeah. So last couple of questions for you here and then I'll let you go. Um, my, my last question, just to tee it up for you, don't answer it yet. But the last question, like I do on all my episodes is going to be what's in your heart because that's the name of the podcast from the heart. So just so you know, that's coming. So maybe you have a minute to, to process that. Normally I don't give my guests that opportunity, but you know, i just, for some reason, I feel like I want to give that to you because I know, I think everything that's in your heart is everything you just shared for the last hour. But um what would you, well, first of all, best place to, how do we find you? I mean, obviously you've got a website and you're yeah. in pretty much every store, but just if somebody's never tried Charles Krug wine before, what would you tell them as far as the best place to go try to find it? And, and then, well, I, would, I, I would go to the website. I would go to charleskrug.com. Yeah, it's a beautiful um, website and has a great video that tells a little bit of the story too. Right. And also um, so much of the wine that we, that we produce and, and taste at the tasting room are not the wines that you taste out and that you see in the stores. Uh, so a lot of small, really small production, very high quality wines that we sell online or at the winery itself. So I definitely go to the, to the, to the website to check it out. Um, 
the other thing that's kind of cool, and we just added this feature, and we were really shocked at uh, how popular it's been. Is we do have a chat uh, session, uh, a chat box on the uh, on the website, and uh, people really get engaged with that. And uh, so, we, so much so that we have to have a man. We thought, oh, yeah, every once in a while somebody might, you know, throw a chat in. No, it's like mm -hmm. nonstop. Yeah, and yeah. it's a great way to ask questions, you know, if you if you don't want to just pick up the phone, but otherwise just pick up the phone and talk to us. And that's a really easy one too. It's it's uh, one eight 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 sip crude. Nice, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Makes it pretty easy. Yeah, uh, we'll put so. that in the notes on this podcast. And also, what I'll do on the video aspect of it um, on the YouTube when we post this. We'll also, for those that are watching and those listening as well, if you go to our YouTube channel and we'll put that in the notes on how to get there, we'll put that little three to four minute video that's yeah, on, their, on their website. It's really nice. We've used it. We've done a virtual wine tasting for those that don't know right. with, my, with my Family Business Directors Alliance around North America. We did a great virtual tour and wine tasting with, with, uh, with Judd and some of his team back in June. It's really, really special. It's pretty fun to do. And that's and Ed, that's what we're doing a lot of now uh, you know, with uh, with COVID and people not traveling. We, we're doing probably twenty of these Zoom tastings a week. Nice. Uh, so you send the cool. wine out in advance. People buy it, they get yeah. it delivered, and then you do yeah, it. Yeah, they buy it, uh, and a lot of it starts with our club members, our, the members of our club, and then they'll have invite like eight or nine or ten of their friends, and and they sort of have a a little mm -hmm. virtual tasting, uh, right. and then uh, we always offer something a little bit special for uh, to to you know entice people to buy <laughs> yeah and they always buy and, and yep. worked with me do it. yeah yeah worked with uh, me so. yeah, there's, never, there's never a day that i don't have several bottles of your wine in my house so yeah there you go as the, and as the inventory is getting low we reorder so yeah love it so what's the best way for people to reach you if they want to reach specifically to you for any reason you know what i am the i'm the most open ceo on the face of the planet so i give out my i freely give out my my cell phone number uh, my, first of all, my email is just jwallenbrock at seamandavi.com. So that's really easy. And then, uh, but my phone number is 707-486-6724. And uh, uh, that is, uh, my cell is a, is a great way to, to reach me. I, I used to have my own label for about 15 years. And a lot of times when people pop the cork, you know, you're going to see an 800 number on the cork or you're going to see a website on the cork. It was my cell phone, cell phone number. Report. I love that. And trust me, folks, he does give that out. I think I'd known him for a week and I already had his cell phone number and I was texting him already and he responds. So even when you're in a grocery store and you're not sure what to get, as he alluded to on this interview more than once. Uh, yeah, I was one day just looking for, you know, a specific wine for a specific purpose and yeah. took a picture of the five shelves of hundreds of different wines, whether it's a Merlot or a Cab or what have you. And he, he pointed me in the right direction and he will with yeah. you as well. So. And, and by the way, Ed, the website does have a, a retailer locator on it too. Okay, so good. So if, you know, if you're somewhere and you just pump, you know, plug in your uh, zip code wherever you happen to be, it'll it'll pop up to see where our wines are. Also, cool. here's there too. Is there any part of the Charles Krug story or the Judd Wallenbrock story that you wish that we would have talked about that I missed? Um, I think, you know, it's, it's uh, for me, it, everything about wine is about the passion for wine mm -hmm. and 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 just in embracing it and getting involved with it i love family i love everything about it but ultimately wine is is really just a very passionate uh uh you know product and 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 i i hope people um aren't afraid of it and that they and that they try wines right and left uh and they and they're and they're not too shy to seek advice from either a good wine shop or just you know friends 
just, uh, it, it, you know, we, <laughs> none of us know everything. I yeah. can just tell you that right now. So uh, the best way to learn is just to try. Last question before I go to my what's in your heart question. Uh, it just popped into my head. Um, in 30 seconds, can you describe the difference between a $15 bottle of cab and a $75 bottle of cab other than 60 bucks? <laughs> yeah, the, the biggest difference is going to be where it comes from. Okay. So, uh, you know, if you can, um, price and quality in wine are pretty well mirrored. Um, they do a really, you know, it's not like pe people are putting crap in a bottle and charging $75 for it. And if it's $75, there's probably a good reason for it. Um, and more than likely it's because it's coming from very, very special vineyards in a very, very special location and probably not very much of it made. So it's sort of supply and demand sure. as well. But that doesn't mean that that $15 bottle of wine isn't an awesome bottle of wine for you specifically at a specific time. Sure. I mean, certainly, you know, $15, I can, I can drink $15 bottles of wine a couple times a week. I can't drink a $75 bottle of wine yeah, a couple times a week. Exactly. Yeah. Without, uh, you know, not uh, paying your light bills or something like that. So no, exactly. very cool. Well, Judd, it's always just an honor for me to get time with you. And I know you're a busy man and you've got a lot going on and especially coming out of all these fires and, and uh, everything literal and figurative fires. It's been a yeah. fire of a year with all that's been going on. We didn't even talk about COVID and I know that the impact on, on you actually, you know, it's just, you've, you've shifted into other avenues a little bit because of limitations with COVID. So let me just finish, like I already teed up. Um, again, thank you for your time and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stop the recording after you give your answer here. So Judd Wallenbrock, what's in your heart? You know, what's in my heart is my family. It's, I'm sitting here at home right now, although it looks like I'm sitting in front of the winery. There you go. And uh, I've got three children uh, and they're all adults. You know, the youngest is 19, she's away at college, but the other two are back home. And it's, it's the strangest thing to, uh, uh, I, I think a lot of people, when you get to a certain age, it's like, come on, leave the house, man, get out of here. Uh, I'm kind of embracing the fact that they're here. I really like it. Uh, Cause you don't know how much longer they will be, you know, and so, so yeah, family, that's what's in my heart.